Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place or Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this, well, this is a little bit of a different episode. Uh, let me let me explain. Uh, no, there isn't enough time. Let me sum up. Uh, back in 2019, I attended BoucherCon in Dallas, uh, and there I met a guy named John Hoda, who uh, is also a writer, who is a professional investigator, and uh, has a very interesting background, and uh, he has a podcast. And he suggested, hey, wouldn't it be a cool idea if we did a simulcast? Uh, since neither of us do a live show, a true simulcast really wasn't possible, but uh, what we settled on was uh, doing a show in which we interview each other, and then uh, both of us uh, putting out that dual interview at uh, roughly the same time. Now, uh, John's version went live already a couple of days before this. Uh, the same interview is essentially available there at uh, johnhoda.com, and the podcast is called My Favorite Detective Stories. Our interview each other episode is episode 95 for him. Uh, or you can listen to it here, of course, uh, and I hope you do. But the idea was for us to uh, uh, ask each other some questions and uh, both answer uh, the same questions and, and kind of contrast and compare how our different experiences have gone. Uh, so it's a little bit of a different interview, a little bit of a different show, uh, if you're used to the 70-odd episodes prior to this, in that uh, uh, the guest is uh, featured heavily, uh, which is the purpose of this show. I always try to uh, keep the spotlight very firmly on the guest. Uh, but the difference here is you will get uh, almost as much uh, screen time, I, I guess, uh, mic time uh, from me. So if uh, if you've wondered about the guy behind the microphone, this is the one to listen to. Uh, it was uh, an interesting experience, both uh, trying to do an interview and then uh, be interviewed. Um, I think that uh, since it was his idea, uh, John kind of took lead and, and kind of um, set most of the questions and then we both answered them. Uh, and it was, uh, like I said, it was an interesting experience. So I hope you dig it. Uh, before we get to it, I do need to let you know that uh, Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of which comes from the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. So if you dig that, you can find a lot of great titles at downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. And I really would strongly encourage you to order directly from the publisher because uh, that supports the publisher and the authors the best. But uh, however you like to get your books, Down Out Books are available anywhere you can get them. Uh, now, let's, uh, let's dive into this uh, different format, and uh, you'll have to let me know in the comments or via email uh, how well you like it. Good afternoon, Frank. Well, hey, John. So we are simulcasting your podcast and my podcast today. That we are. Uh, Frank Safiro and John Hoda. So you are either listening to Wrong Place or Right Crime or My Favorite Detective Stories. Did you like and that? Did you like that radio voice? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, whichever one you're listening to, you decide to go check out the other one as a result of this crossover. Absolutely. Uh, we met at uh, Bauschikan in uh, Dallas uh, in the fall. And we thought it would be a neat idea to simulcast. So um, for my listeners, as we're recording this today on uh, February 21st, uh, 2020, and uh, in my neck of the woods, which is southwestern uh, Connecticut, it's uh, breezy, uh, sunny, but uh, mild and no snow. How about you, Frank? 
Well, I am in central Oregon in the high desert where it is uh, very shiny out, uh, the sun's out, but uh, a little crisp as well. Ah, that's nice. And no snow? Uh, no, no, it's not very snowy here usually. Uh, there's a couple of years that have been an exception, but usually it's uh, pretty light on the snow and just gets cold. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not familiar with your neck of the woods, but uh, as I get to know you, I will. So, uh, so uh, do you want to tell me about uh, how you got started in your uh, career or do you want me to go first? Uh, well, why don't you go first? Uh, both of us have a law enforcement background, but I think that uh, it'd be interesting to hear how they're the same and different. Yeah. Okay. So uh, 1976 or 1975, I graduated from college uh, with a degree in criminology and returned to my hometown and I was driving a truck. Now, of course, that's what all college graduates do when they have to pay off their loans before they get a job. And uh, my local town had an opening uh, in 1976, uh, anticipating a a horde of visitors uh, for the bicentennial rush around Philadelphia. And I was hired as the first uh, college-educated police officer on a small-town police department outside of Philadelphia. And, uh, it was during that time, uh, that I would, uh, on the midnight shift when it was kind of quiet, I would read writers like Joseph Wamba and, uh, the new centurion and blue Knight and the choir boys. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then, but never had any thoughts about being a writer at the time. Uh, but, uh, my policing career was uh, a very short time, but I parlayed that into becoming an insurance fraud investigator. And that's where I, I pretty much cut my teeth. Uh, for the next 20-some years, I worked as an insurance fraud investigator for the insurance fraud industry, uh, insurance fraud investigations industry, and uh, enjoyed it uh, immensely. Um, then, in uh, I guess, back in 97, I decided to uh, pull my own ticket as a private investigator and got licensed in several states up here in the Northeast and created my first uh, private investigations company. It's been a couple year, a uh, couple decades since then. Uh, my present company is Hoda Investigations. Uh, I serve primarily the uh, criminal defense and personal injury uh, law firms around uh, Connecticut. And it was uh, a short while ago that I got the writing bug, but I won't go into that quite yet. Um, during my years uh, as a uh, law in law enforcement and then doing insurance fraud. I just wanted to learn everything I could about the craft of investigations, Um, interviewing, statement taking, locating people, uh, went to conferences, uh, learned as much as I could. A lot of mentors in my life. I had good mentors when I was uh, on the police department, a couple of veteran patrolmen that took me under their wing. Uh, Jack King and Bob Suda uh, were two great guys that when they came to work, they came to work. And uh, we had a lot of fun when we were out there. And you know it as well as I do. Uh, being on the job can be the most fun anybody could ever have. And then I, uh, I transitioned into uh, more of a day job and uh, just totally enjoyed it. Uh, I, loved, uh, I loved doing, uh, figuring out not so much who did it, because whoever was trying to get the money out of the uh, insurance company was the who. Just loved, uh, just loved the, the field craft of being an investigator. And uh, just wanted to know as much as I could possibly be a, a, what I could about that. And then somewhere along the way um, in, my, in my licensed PI days, I learned two other areas of expertise, which are 
very seemingly different, but very, very much fun. And I had a lot of gratification from working them. And that was a forensic genealogy where I learned to find missing heirs all throughout the world, people that were entitled to money from estates that had no clue that they were heirs to, to estates. People had died very far out on a other branch of a family tree. And it just turned out that they were the nearest living relatives. And then uh, criminal defense, I, I worked the other side of the aisle. I worked for very high-powered uh, criminal defense attorneys in the greater New Haven area that would come to me when they felt that they had not not just not guilty clients, but actual innocent clients, and they wanted me to help them work on their cases, and I was more than happy to. And that uh, was a lot of fun, hard work, um, but fun and very gratifying too. So um, very happy about my career. I mean, I had a lot of stuff to uh, to look at in my career that I could tell stories from, uh, I could or I could create stories from a lot of. Uh, grist for the mill, so to speak. Um, gosh, I had the, uh, like you, had a window seat to the world and uh, just, you know, had a chance to, where could you get that kind of dialogue, you know, elsewhere, right? Other than real time dealing with some of the folks that we dealt with, witnesses and victims and what have you. And uh, it just was just a, a wonderful, fertile breeding ground for my imagination uh, for me to start t- you know, taking off with my writing. How about you, Frank? Well, yeah, the job definitely uh, is is a great uh, jumping off place for for your imagination. I mean, uh, I think people who necessarily don't have that experience, they have to imagine the first half of things, uh, you know, and then uh, and then go from there. If you've got that experience already, you, you've got that foundation that you can turn around and, you know, jump off from, uh, you know, f- f- from deeper into the uh, into the experience and, and, and there's always, there's always that sense of, uh, of veracity, that very similar, uh, very similitude. If I'm saying that correctly, I can, mm-hmm. I can, I can type it. I don't <laughs> know if I could say it. Uh, but you know, when, when people read your work and say, Hey, uh, wow, it's obvious that you've done this job then. Well, yeah, it is. And that's, that, that's where the, where the inspiration can come from. I took a very different route than you. Uh, that, that's why I found you're so interesting because it is different. Um, you know, I, I came on the job, um, after being in the military for about five years and mm-hmm. doing, doing some odd, odd jobs after that, waiting for the testing cycle to come through. Cause it was a two year cycle. Uh, but I came on the job back in 90, uh, 93 mm-hmm. and I worked in, in a mid-sized city uh, of Spokane, Washington, uh, about 200,000 people at the time. Um, and, uh, the, the thing that I like about my career, the thing that I think has helped me as a writer is that uh, I had a lot of experiences on the uh, on the, you know, the horizontal part of a police career. And then the latter half of my career was more vertical. Uh, and what I mean by that is I, I got the opportunity to be, you know, patrol officer. I got the opportunity to be a field training officer and train young officers when they come on. Uh, I got to be a detective for a couple of years. Um, and in the process of all of that, I, you know, I got to do the, you know, the heavy lifting that those folks do and and have those experiences, um, which, uh, 
you know, are those types of interviews that you're talking about where you pick up on people's tendencies and dialects and, and there's those things that, you know, you can't ever use because people would say that's crazy. It would never happen. So mm-hmm. just, <laughs> uh, but then about halfway through my career, I, I, I took a sergeant's test uh, more on a whim than anything and ended up scoring pretty well and getting promoted. And so then the latter half of my career, I, I spent in leadership roles going from sergeant to lieutenant to captain to major. And then they eliminated the major rank. So I, I retired as a captain. And the nice part about that was I got to oversee areas that I probably never would have worked in as a as an operator or as a line level person, like I, I, I don't think I would have ever had the ability to run fast enough and far enough to be a canine handler. Okay. Those guys, those guys are track stars, um, you know, to keep up with those dogs, but I got to be the commander of the canine unit. And so I got to learn about the dogs. I got to see the dogs work. I got to understand how and why they uh, do the things they do and, and, you know, to better be equipped to uh, make sure that the guys had everything they needed to do their job and to be able to argue persuasively for, for those things to leadership. Um, And so, you know, now I can write about canine stuff uh, with enough particularity to, to be realistic and, and, uh, and, and not be wrong and what, you know, not be guessing about what I'm writing about. And the same thing was true with the SWAT unit. I got to command the SWAT unit, uh, as well. And, and, and just like with the canine unit, I, I dove in to learning mode, uh, as the commander to learn what I needed to know to be able to make the right decisions. Um, and so that, that's helped quite a bit. And then the other place that it's definitely helped is, uh, especially at the, uh, uh, captain and above level is you get into the, the politics of policing, which are, uh, I, I think are rather nasty pretty much everywhere, to be honest with you, like any corporation, uh, you know, at the executive level, just, uh, whether it's internal or external, it can get, uh, get a little dark sometimes. Uh, but you know, you need good people in those positions because otherwise the troops get screwed. Right. Uh, and so that, that was my primary mission was to, to do right by my people and to make sure they, Number one, had what they needed to do their job. And then number two, uh, to make sure they didn't get, uh, you know, uh, well, I, I frequently describe my job as being a, uh, a crap umbrella. It was my <laughs> job to, to keep the crap from hitting the guys when they didn't deserve it, you know, when it wasn't their, you know, direct responsibility for, for whatever. Uh, you know, people, people need to be responsible for their own actions. Don't get me wrong, but I know. You know how it goes. I mean, uh, that that kind of stuff rolls downhill, and it shouldn't always. Um, and so that that was that's a thumbnail sketch of my career, I guess. I you know, and, and what I liked about it again was there was a a fair amount of breadth, breadth, and there's some some vertical movement as well, which gave me a pretty wide range of of, of experiences. But I think the biggest difference between your, your experience and mine was I've known I was a writer since I was about ten years old or so. And so um, even though I didn't start writing crime fiction until about 2004, I'd been writing and had considered myself a, a writer or a writer in waiting, I guess, uh, uh, since I was pretty young. Um, and some of my first stories that were published were not crime fiction stories. Uh, but uh, thanks to the career changing every couple of years and getting a college degree, uh, a couple of them you know, while on the job, there were times where I wasn't writing fiction, uh, where I was writing term papers or, mm-hmm. or white, white papers for the job or, mm-hmm. or, 
police reports, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Uh, but finally I was in a position around 2004 where I, I take a deep breath and, uh, and I connected with a, a friend of mine who was also on the job, who was also a writer. And so, uh, then the short stories I was kicking out, uh, not only started getting published, but they started being crime fiction. And nice. that's where, that's where I've focused, uh, I'd say 80, 85% of my work since then has been crime fiction. Okay. So, um, a lot of, a lot of parallels, but also a lot of differences. Uh, my writing prior to uh, fiction writing was reports uh, for my clients or the occasional piece for a trade journal or uh, ma in industry magazine. And fortunately, I had very strong editors in all those uh, forays. So people that could look over my writing and say, you could say this better or you could say this differently. Of course, uh, spelling, uh, syntax, and grammar. You know, sometimes you can't see the uh, forest from the trees. And this was back in the day before spell check or Grammarly. So uh, you could look at it a hundred times and not pick it up. And uh, fortunately, I had very, very strong editors um, in that respect. But going back to my first attempt at writing fiction, I had this idea kicking around in my head for a gosh, it had to be 20 years. This is back in, well, this is when, the, when it finally came together it was back around 2009. And I, it, my first book is titled Fantasy Baseball. It's about a second chance. It was a general literary, and, but it was an idea that I had kicking around in my had kicking around in my head forever. And the basic story was about a um, a little league coach and an insurance salesman in a little down out of the way town of Reading, Pennsylvania, that uh, got a chance to uh, pitch in the major leagues because of a very unique batting practice pitch he had that was unhittable. And I had the beginning, you know, the fact that he was this you know, little league coach and a uh, insurance salesman, uh, insurance salesman. And I had the ending, which was, you know, ending up in the major leagues, you know, pitching my beloved Philadelphia Phillies into the pennant. But I didn't have the middle. And one day I was at a, a baseball game with my son and I had it right there. It was fantasy baseball camp. And this is where um, people like right now, this time of year, go to their spring training facilities all around the United States where their, their teams are, are about ready to practice. And uh, they get to rub shoulders with their heroes of yesteryear and play baseball in the sunshine for three or four days. So that's how I did that. I did it as, a, um, as part of my research for the book. And that was the middle of how I got my guy from uh, the beginning to the end. But I also didn't know a, a spit about writing fiction. So I bought a book. And it was called How to Write Fiction for Dummies. <laughs> and <laughs> I studied that book, you know, and I, I went through all the exercises. I did all the checklists and I wrote a book. I had it professionally edited. I had a professionally, uh, professional cover done. Actually, the cover was done by a guy that was, uh, had done uh, album covers for, you know, some small acts. You might have heard of them before, Almond Brothers or uh, Led Zeppelin. And uh, he did. He offered to do my book cover for me. So that was several years ago. And I got to tell you, Frank, I got the bug. Oh my God, did I get the bug? I just, I don't know where my life had been before that. I mean, in terms of having a hobby that just uh, was better than golf. You know, I just got sucked into it. I, I, my writing sessions, I don't get bored. I'm focused on what I'm doing and just enjoying myself immensely. And from that book came a cast of characters that are going to be um, seven or eight, uh, characters deep into other books, uh, different genres as well. A historical fiction, a, a crime thriller with a mystery twist, police procedurals. 
So it was just from that uh, genesis that it all happened for me. Um, did I know how to write? No. Uh, I just had a, uh, a an editor last week uh, ex- agree with me <laughs> that I should be taking a, uh, a prose writing class, either online or at a community college, because I just never learned those skills. And as much as um, I'm being taught uh, reactively by my editors, I'm just not picking it up. So if I can get the foundation for that, I'll be a better prose writer. And then they will have a better, easier time reading my stuff. So that, And then when the uh, copy editors and the proofreaders get it, it won't be like they're doing a major surgery, you know, that they'll actually have something that they can work with. So it's still a work in progress for me. I think to 2010 till now, tw- 10 years, uh, I'm still in the... Uh, I'm still in the uh, the uh, infant stages of my writing. I don't know. Um, I don't. I heard that you don't get to be good until after your first million words. You know. So uh, I'm working that way. How about you? How did your How did you make the jump? I, I think that's that that ten thousand hours thing is is uh, well, it's an arbitrary number. I, I don't think it's uh, uh, inaccurate at all. I think uh, anything you want to be good at. Um, you know, you you just got to continue to to work at it and not work blindly either. But like you, you did a couple of really smart things, and that is you listened to feedback from editors and you sought out you know ways to educate yourself. And I think that's that's how you get better during that ten thousand hours. I mean, ten thousand hours of doing something wrong isn't going to make you good at it. You know, <laughs> so so uh, uh, you know, I look back at some of the stuff I wrote when I was very young and thought was good and, and, you know, it's, it's obviously very horrible and amateurish now when I see it. Um, and, and even, even around that time period when I started writing very seriously in crime fiction, early two thousands, uh, through, you know, 2005, 2006, uh, there's a couple of books that, um, uh, that I, that I wrote drafts of during that time that, uh, I later pulled back out, and uh and went out again and and i was just shocked at you know what five years of of working in the craft had done uh for my skill level and how 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 glad i am that i did i did that before i published those you know Mm -hmm. um and uh so and the other thing is is having that feedback from editors and from other writers that you trust and that that you are willing to give feedback to as well i think really really makes makes a difference um i I think i was in the same boat as you in a lot of ways in that i i know that the technical writing that i did both on the job and and i was a history major so i wrote a ton for school right had some pretty exacting professors so i couldn't just mail it in by any means um you know those that's like you know, it's like any, it's like hitting the weight room, right? I mean, your, your mm-hmm. muscles, your muscles work for whatever sport you're doing. Uh, if you make them stronger, they're going to work for, for hockey or baseball. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter, you know, and then you work on the skills of your particular, you know, craft uh, right. as well. Uh, and so that, that helped quite a bit. Uh, but, you know, I like, I mean, I look back at my first book and I, I've, been tempted and I'll never do it because there's just too many stories left to tell in the future, but I've been tempted to, you know, go back and, and, and do a complete, you know, a massive revision of it. Uh, just, uh, because while I, I love the book and I think it's a good book and I'm glad that it's a great introduction to people 
uh, and it's free, so it's mm-hmm. you know, it's easy for people to get a hold of. Uh, Under a Raging Moon is the name of it. Um, but compared to the second book, there's a huge jump in in my writing uh, in between the two. And then uh, again, when the third book came out, there's another pretty large jump. Um, and then hopefully it's grown incrementally since then. Um, and and so uh you know I, I think it's a combination of all the things that you talked about it's a combination of doing it uh of of educating yourself so that you're doing it as close to whatever right means when it comes to writing uh and uh and you know one thing that i i, I think a lot of writers probably struggle with and i i know i i know i did at one time as well is being able to you know taking criticism is a, is an art form in and of itself because you know, just because somebody has a criticism of your work doesn't mean they know what the hell they're talking about. So you have to be willing to discount some criticism, but sure. at the same time, uh, you have to be able to accept criticism and, right. and try, try to be objective about it and go, you know what, she's got a point. This is, this is weak or, you know, this is out of character or, or this doesn't make sense or whatever the criticism is. Um, and that's why, when I send my work out to beta readers, it's, you know, four, five, six people at least, because, you know, if somebody sends something back that I'm not sure if I'm buying the criticism or not, it helps to be able to know, well, you know, they're not the only one who said that, or they are the only one that said that. So now I have to kind of decide how I feel about it. Just one, one to one, as opposed to, wow, I've got four out of the six people who said this character is a total jerk. And mm. I don't mean, I don't mean for him to be a jerk. So what do <laughs> I need to do, you know, or whatever. Um, but taking criticism, I think is an art form that, uh, uh, people don't, I realize as much as they're walking into it, uh, that it's because, because it's an intellectual exercise, it's an artistic exercise and it's an emotional exercise, uh, all, all wrapped up in one. And, uh, it's funny. My, my wife is my biggest supporter and my biggest critic. And that's why I go to her first with most, most everything. And, uh, when, when she'll tell me her feedback, sometimes I make her mad because I'll, I'll like try to explain why I was doing that or mm-hmm. why, you know, and, and the, the reality of it is, is I need to just shut up and listen because she's, <laughs> right, you know, she's, she's right. 90% of the time and 90, 90% of the time I take her, take her advice. It's very, very rare. And, and even in the 10% of the time where I don't take her advice directly, it usually serves as a jump off point to, uh, to getting where I need to be. It's like, oh, you, you know, yeah, I see what you mean there. That is wrong. I don't like the fix that you prescribed, but I do, I do need to fix it. So I'm going to fix it this way. So it's still beneficial. I, I can't think of a time where she was just flat out wrong. And, and if, so if you cultivate good, uh, you know, readers or, or editors or, you know, beta readers, whatever you want to call them, people to give you feedback, um, boy, they're, they're they're worth their their weight in gold and that that is what has helped me a lot uh uh as part of the process of of doing the craft and, and improving through repetition mm. i've got i got two editor stories that are uh i think representative of what you're talking about and then uh i'll ask you for your feedback on it too my very first editor uh we we talked initially about the uh developmental or structural edit and what we wanted to do. And then uh, she gave me uh, her feedback 
and it was done by via email with uh, Word docs and tra- with track changes. And I uh, f- emailed her back saying that I agreed with ninety percent of what she had said, but certain things I wanted to keep in just because you know I didn't see it as being a as a distraction and and later on it would serve me very nicely as part of a series development and and she said thank you very much and uh and we we had what was then a uh, amicable understanding of that I would make the the changes so uh I went about doing all the changes I I went about making the revisions and I'm not take, saying it was major surgery and luckily there was no amputations but I got I did most of it. So uh, I had a copy editor then go over the book. And But one thing that the, the uh, structural developmental editor had promised to me do, to do as part of her contract was to make this, the chapter breaks because I was writing in scene format, scene one, scene two, scene three, and I needed that to be broken into uh, formatted according to chapters. So I, I asked her if she would uh, come back and look at it again and uh, and honor the rest of the contract. And that was to put in the uh, chapter breaks. Well, she read it again and she said, oh my God, you made all those changes and you made, you made the book so much better. And I said, what'd you think I was going to do? You know, uh, you think I was just going to take your advice, pay you the money and just say, oh, that's nice. And just have my ego get in the way. No. And she said, no, you really, you really made this a much better book. Now, of course I'm beaming at that point because it was my first real serious, you know, $85,000, uh, 85,000 word book that's getting edited. And, and the editor is saying, gee, you, you, you made a better version of it than you had. And then she also put the chapter breaks in and she said, well, while she was at it, she also picked up on some more copy or, or proofread edits. And I said, well, I'll pay it an additional money to go back through it again. So she had to go through it with a fine tooth comb again. And she really loved the book. And I guess the best accolade she gave me was that she would be happy to have her name in the acknowledgments as my editor. Because let's face it, there might be some stuff that people edit that they don't want their name, you know, inside the book because, well, it doesn't pass muster, but they got paid to, to edit it. So second story is just this past week. Uh, my last book, uh, the editor gave me his uh, track changes and he also gave me a, a general summary. And... It, I was told by this, by other people that this guy was brutal, uh, before I hired him. Uh, and I accepted their knowledge of this guy as being a really good editor and that if he was brutal, then I was going to get some damn good feedback. He wasn't going to sugarcoat it. Well, he didn't, but <laughs> and I smarted. It was like 45 minutes to two out to about an hour of me just sitting there going, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God chapter after chapter. And then finally, at the end, uh, he said, but on the, on the bright side, I look forward to reading it every, every day when I got, you know, I read it, I looked forward to reading it. I liked your characters. I liked your plot. I just think, you know, there's some work that you can do on this to really make it better. So I felt that the patient would live. I just had to do the surgery and I didn't mind. I certainly didn't mind doing it. And one of the things he said to me was that I really should be uh, taking a prose class or doing something about my prose because uh, it was very sophomoric and very, you know, very, very, um, well, not very, not very good. So I said, okay, I can learn that. And uh, I would. So those are my two editor examples. And, you know, the criticism could put some people into a funk. The criticisms could put some people to put those manuscripts in the drawer and never look at them again. Sort of like 
what had happened with people that had written a lot of stuff but could never get a traditional publisher to accept it or get an agent to accept it. So therefore, they thought that their stuff was crap, but they never got better at it or never never wanted to pursue it after that. In other words, I'm not a writer. I'm a failure. You know, never do it. Instead, I look at these as opportunities. I don't care that I'm, you know, uh, you know, 65, going to be 66 in November. Doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that I can become a better writer. And by listening to people that are good at the craft, I can perfect my craft and get better. Was I a great investigator, you know, the first day I came out of the police academy? No. Was I a great, you know, whatever, the first time I ever did something, uh, laced up my shoes and decided I was going to run a marathon? Did I run 26 miles? No. I had to learn along the way. So what are your what are your uh, thoughts in this area too, Frank? Well, yeah, I think it goes back to what we were saying before is it's a process. And, um, you know, I mean, it's uh, I'm kind of at the other end of the spectrum in that I, I grew up thinking of myself as a writer, wanting to be a writer okay. and, and, and writing, writing short stories. And while I thought they were stories, they were more scenes or vignettes and, mm-hmm. and, and terribly derivative of everything I was reading at the time. Because like you said, when you first start out, that's, that's what you do. You, you, you learn from the people who have gone before and you discover who you are and uh, what your specific uh, skills are that might be a little bit more unique uh, uh, you know, to the craft and, uh, it's, it's, a it, it just, it, it, it takes time. It takes time. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I think everybody's path is different. Like I didn't go from point A to point B to, to where I am now in one steady line. I mean, I wrote a whole lot when I was in high school and even junior high, um, and my early twenties. And then once I came on the job, I just didn't have time. Mm-hmm. And so I was right. I was writing other things. Uh, and so my fiction took a, not even a backseat. It was not even in the car. It was in the garage on a shelf, you know? <laughs> um, and so when I pulled it back out, it was dusty. Uh, you know, I was like, uh, needed to be cleaned up and, and worked on it fresh and, you know, any skill that you don't use, uh, frequently you, you know, you, uh, it atrophies or certainly can regress. And, and so you need to, uh, you know, get, get back up to speed with it and, and everything. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a place though, uh, right now I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about where I'm at in the, in the craft arena. I mean, I, I that's not to say that I don't want to continue to improve because I absolutely need to. Um, but the things that I focus on improving now, I'm, I'm every once in a while, I take a step back and go, okay, stop being so hard on yourself because you're talking about improving one very small element here or one very small element there. You're not talking about you know, you're like when you were 20 and you were trying to learn how to write something longer than 500 words. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I mean, people who go into the professions that we've been in, um, or the general profession and the, the different jobs within it, most of them, I mean, there's variations of the types of people, of course, but most of them, are pretty driven people and driven people tend to be hard on themselves. So mm-hmm. once, in a, once in a while you have to do, like you said, step back and say, Hey, there's a whole lot of people out there who talk about, I'm going to write a book someday that never put word one to paper, much less show it to anyone. And so even though I will come back to a scene that I've written and say, 
you know, this is just utter tripe. I mean, you can't, you know, there, there's no sense of the setting here. You, you could be in a hospital room or up on a mountaintop. I mean, uh, you know, you got to get better at writing settings, you know, and be harping on myself. Every once in a while, you got to sit back and go, yeah, but, you know, uh, uh, this is my 28th book that I'm working on, too. Mm-hmm. So it may, maybe I should feel good about that. And and I think that's true in everything that you do in, in life. I mean, like you said, you get better at, at whatever career you're working in. I mean, I was a way better investigator at, at the end of the two years I spent investigating than I was at the beginning, you right. know, and. And I was miles and miles and miles behind the guys that were investigating major crimes, you know, that that had had game I hadn't even a thought hadn't even thought of yet, you know. Uh, so uh, we're all on our own journey to get mm-hmm. metaphysical, I guess. I mean, it's kind of a cliche now. It's a, it's a, it's this year's at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but it's true. We are. We're all on our own journey, and and it all takes place in its own time and. And every one is specifically uh, the way that it is because of what we're trying to accomplish. Not everybody's trying to accomplish the same thing. I mean, I'm no longer trying to find an agent and get published by uh, a, a a big New York publisher and you know and and, and go on uh, the Tonight Show. You know, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't turn it down if they knocked on the door and said, "Here's a career path for free." Yeah. Uh, but that's not where I put my effort anymore. Uh, and and so my journey's different than than some of the people that I interview on this show uh who are absolutely on that path and that's great it's great for them because it's working for them and it it, it meets with the needs that they have and the reason that they continue to write uh, you know uh which is kind of something I would segue to and ask because I I I I think it's kind of funny that people are like well why do you write and and you get that question sometimes in interviews, particularly if it's an email interview. And I always think to myself, do people ask like musicians why they play guitar? You know, I mean, it it's self-evident when it's music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do people ask, you know, why do you play hockey? I mean, it's self-evident, isn't it? You know, I mean, it, and and so. But when it comes to writing, it seems like it's a question that comes up sometimes, and maybe it's because it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't even know. I I don't even want to speculate. All all I my answer is I write because I'm a writer, you know, and I would I would write whether anybody was reading this or not because I have, <laughs> I have written when nobody was reading anything. Yeah. No, I, I I like your answer, and I like the way you you, you phrased it. You know, uh, uh, why do you know why does a guitar slayer play the guitar? You know, why is Slash a guitarist. Well, you know, that's because that's who he's a guitarist. That's it. You know, that's it. Now, uh, I, you know, I'm just going to say a little bit about, you know, the fact that I'm still learning my craft and I'm still learning some of the rudimentary skills of my craft. But I also know, like you do, to hire good people to help you with those things that, you know, uh, I would never think of in a million years of designing a book cover, right? Never. But uh, I, and I, and when I have a good book to, a cover designer, when they show me proofs of what they want to do, I know that I, I can see what they're trying to do and I can appreciate it. Whereas I could have never dreamed that stuff up in a million years. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. uh, my proofreaders, my copy editors, my edit, my structure and developmental editors, they're all experts at what they do. I rely on them. And by that, some of that does by osmosis transmit into my books. I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm still writing on the cave walls as I was maybe, you know, eight, nine years ago. but. Um, but what you commented on too is the fact that uh, 
you're uh, an indie author by choice, as I am. I made my decision right from the get-go. Um, I was going to become an indie author. Uh, it had more to do with uh, royalty splits, uh, more to, and more to do with, well, I still have to do my own marketing anyway, so you know, what's the value uh, after the initial 60-, 90-day launch? You know, it, do I need to have a, uh, a New York publisher bestow upon me a, uh, uh, a seal of good writing? You know, like uh, somehow I've, I've gotten a big five uh, uh, knighthood. No, I would rather have a reader say to me, as they do, I really love that. Or damn it, Hoda, I stayed up till three o'clock in the morning reading that ending. I couldn't put it down. That's what I would rather hear, you know? So uh, to me, uh, the value the, the value I get out of uh, being an independent author is uh, not so much being a control freak, but having control over all the aspects of uh, the writing, the production, um, the marketing, uh, and all of that. And to me, I feel like um, that's the best representation of myself. And I'm happy not to be chasing um, uh, agents who may or may not like uh what I'm writing. I, t I talked to a, another writer today that on their, uh, after 90, nine zero rejections by agents, they did a little bit of research and went directly to a publisher who was right exactly smack dab in the middle of their genre. And they thought it that that book was the, the next book that would be of value to their readership because, you know, this, this writer had done his research to, to put himself in uh, in alignment with uh, a readership that just so happens that this uh, publisher would would cater to, uh, not to say that, and it's not to disparage the ninety agents that were in between those two, but I would have to think that a lot of those agents didn't have any interest in the book because they could not see a market for it, they could not see the readership for it based upon their previous experiences. For me, I just I'm skipping that step and I'm deciding to go directly to the the readers. And if they're interested in this book, or if they're interested in that book, they might like my book, you know. And uh, I'm just hoping that's where I could be. What are your thoughts on uh, your decision to become an indie author? I'd love to hear it. Well, it, you know, I, I there was a time period where I was sending stuff off to agents uh, and to to publishers and. Uh, and and even as recently as a few years ago, because I I think what it comes down to is it's just it, it there's pros and cons of both approaches, right? And they're they're almost oh, yeah. diametrically opposed. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you you get greater control uh, as an independent author, uh, but you assume all of the risk. Um, as a you know, if you have a large publisher, there's greater reach there. You might end up on the the shelves of. <clears throat> excuse me, the shells of Walmart or uh, Barnes and Noble or Target or the grocery store. I mean, there's- Or the there's, airport. Yeah, there's benefit to all of that. There's absolute benefit to all that if you can if you can uh, get past the gatekeepers uh, mm -hmm. uh, and their, you know, subjective uh, view of things. Um, so I, I don't have like, I don't have any angst towards people who go one route go that route nor toward people who have gone the route I have. I'm kind of a hybrid author right now in that uh, some of my books are with a small publisher. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, I guess, bordering on mid-sized publisher at this point. Um, and and there are benefits to that that I enjoy. And so that that's great for those series. But I like to keep a couple of the series um, as independently published and maintain 100% control over those uh, since I uh, – you know, have had that for, for about a decade now. So my first book was published by a very small publisher, like a one man show, basically. Is that and under a raging moon? Yeah, that's under a raging moon. It's, okay. it's been published. Uh, I, I guess, um, it's, this would be the third, third edition of, of it in, in its current form. Okay. Uh, so it was originally published by a small publisher in Georgia and, um, and it actually did pretty well for for that market, you know, for a small publisher coming out of uh, at that time period, 2006. Um, and I, I was pretty excited about that. I was like, that's something to build on. It's not, not going to be any anybody's name uh, in a grocery store, but I was doing well at the bookstores I went to and and the events, and and I was getting some momentum. And then I gave him the second book in the series, and he came back and said, uh, "Yeah, I, I can't publish this." And I was like, "Wow." Uh, are you saying the writing's bad? Because I, I think it, you know, is pretty good. And he's like, no, actually it's better than the first book. Um, I can't publish it because there's a, uh, a child victim, a child in peril and nobody wants to read that, which <laughs> I took umbrage at. I didn't agree sure. with him. Right. Uh, he put together a survey monkey that with some very leading questions and got about 12 people to take a poll to prove it to me. And I'm like, well, it doesn't prove anything to me, no. except except that you can write a slanted survey. Um, <laughs> but but that's okay, fine. I'll I'll publish it elsewhere then. And and uh, he wouldn't give me back the rights to the first book, which I understood. He 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 went to the expense of the cover design and the all the things that go into publishing a book, and he wanted to you know recoup as much as he could out of that. And so. Um, so the book stayed with that publisher uh, for the two or three years that the contract said. I forget now. Mm-hmm. I think it was I think it was two two full years. And I took the second book to another publisher, knowing good and well that trying to get somebody to take book two in a series is pretty pretty uh, yeah. pretty near impossible. Right. Um, but uh, uh, I, I had been in an anthology uh, with this uh, second publisher. And, uh, she, she was not, not a, quite a one man show, but, uh, uh, she had a partner and a publicist. So she was a, a little bit bigger and, uh, she liked the stories that I'd sent. So when I approached her, she's like, yeah, we'll publish the second book if it's any good. And then when you get the rights back to the first book, we'll reissue it. So I sent it to her and she loved it, published it. Still one of my favorite covers, uh, uh, from that era that, that uh, she commissioned. Uh, it was a local artist, uh, uh, a woman named Martina that did it. And it's a, it's a great cover. I loved it. Um, and so it was published. And in fact, she published it in hardback too. It's the only book of mine that's been in nice. hardcover. So I was flying high. I thought things were great. And then uh, that publisher uh, overextended and suffered the fate of many small publishers in this world and uh, published too many books too fast and didn't promote any of them enough to sell enough of any of them to keep things rolling. Uh, So unfortunately she closed her doors and was gracious enough to roll the rights back to me right away. So, you know, I'm by that time I'm 
like finished with the third book and mapping out the fourth book and I'm sitting on two books, one, you know, one of which I own and the other one of which I don't yet have oh, back. Boy. <laughs> so uh, it's just a huge mess. And, and so I, I tried to think about what I might wanted to do. And, and the, one of the issues that was hard was both of these publishers were half a country away. One was in Georgia and one was in Florida. And mm. I was in Washington state. So, you know, I mean, some of the interactions, sometimes there, the distance caused some problems, uh, made it really easy to be, to get ignored a couple of times. And, and so I found a publisher that was, uh, again, going from being, uh, more of a printer and a publisher of trail guides to moving into the fiction market right there in Spokane. Great odd press was the name of it. Um, and I, I, I went to their offices. I went not to the Why not? office, sat down with the, uh, editor in chief and sold him on the series. And, um, you know, he's a nice guy and, and was, like I said, trying to move into the fiction market, trying to get a good distribution deal going. And he wanted a couple of kind of flagship uh, series to to, to push while, uh, while doing that. So he published – He by then I got the rights back to the first book. So he reissued the first book, reissued the second book, and then published the third and the fourth uh, ultimately before um, – before they got out of the business of, oh, of publishing fiction. And so by the time that happened, here I am, I'm sitting on four books. I've killed three publishers. I'm starting to think maybe it's me, <laughs> uh, you know, except that all the books got great reviews. They got good following. And and so, you know, I mean, I knew the books were good. Uh, and now it's like 2012. Um, and when uh, the beginning of independence, exactly. Yes. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, exactly. That, that was the timing. And so I, at that point, you know, I wasn't the early adopter. I was the guy who looked at the early adopter and said, Hey, they're onto something and jumped in and, um, and they just went crazy. I mean, I was, uh, I had a, like a three month stretch there where I was selling between like eight and 15,000 copies a, a month. Wow. And, uh, it's just bonkers for, I mean, if, if you look at, if you go on to Amazon, if I go on to Amazon and look at my like all time sales, it's like, looks like a prairie next to a mountain, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cause that, the, there's, there's just a period there where it was just going absolutely crazy. Um, but it did convince me that, you know, if, if you educate yourself about right. the process, like you, you didn't try to design your own cover, you hired a designer. Mm -hmm. Well, so did I, I got somebody to design the book covers because, you know, I, I'm not a book designer. Uh, but anyway, that, that's a rather long version of events. I didn't mean to go on forever. No, I uh, loved it because but, I loved your journey. And, uh, and when it's my turn, I'm going to talk a little bit about you know, how our geographic location plays into why I was such a hardcore indie from the get-go, but go ahead. Uh, well, just to come full circle, I guess, in each of those instances, you know, the, 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 the book, the first book, um, you know, it got a little bit of a revision uh, from the editor when I was uh, uh, published again in uh, 2010. And then I went through and did a, a revision based on feedback uh, over the, you know, since it had been published uh, before I, I published it independently. Uh, and you, you talk about region, um, not necessarily from the decision to go indie standpoint, but uh, certainly from, you know, the setting, most of my books were, were set in either Spokane or fictional Spokane called River City. Um, and so uh, 
that's a draw for for people who live in the area because they get you know to read mm-hmm. about things things happening in their own in their in their own backyard right um and and it was advantageous from one business point in that there's a uh audiobook publisher based in Spokane called Books in Motion and uh I was able to have a face to face meeting uh and and you know submit my work to them and they they do the audio uh series for the river city series they've done all five books so far um and they do a really good job very professional job and use the same narrator uh, michael bowen for for all five of them and uh, uh that's been a, that that's been so there's some advantage to being from spokane when it mm-hmm. came to the, the audio deal right no for my situation uh, when I started to learn how to write fiction from my fiction book, uh, they actually were pretty much slanted towards traditional, but they realized that, uh, back in when they wrote it sometime in the mid, uh, two thousands that, uh, indie was starting to come on the radar screen and they, they showed the pros and cons for both. And I decided to read a book, um, by J. A. Conrath, I think it's the self, mm-hmm. uh, the self-publishing guide uh, by yeah. by J. A. Conrath, a newbie's guide to publishing or something. Yes, like that. yes, right, the newbie's guide to publishing, and it you know it's got that pulp fiction kind of you look at it uh, to the to the uh, to the cover and what have you. But he talked about himself and Barry Eisler and a few other people uh, who were killing it, and. He also talked about, you know, his trials and tribulations trying to get traditionally published. And then with the uh, advent of uh, Kindle and uh, other platforms that allowed him to self-publish, you know, all that grinding he had done for all those years. Now, suddenly, all those uh, barriers or humps in the road, he had smoothed out by just pure uh, tenacity and, uh, and, um, you know, uh, just bullheadedness moving forward but the 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 chance to become indie afforded him the opportunity to get his stuff out there and when i looked at the the struggles he had gone through and how his arguments for going indie i decided i wasn't going backwards and during that time period i also came across a very influential guru uh joanna penn uh, the creative mm-hmm. pen. and mm-hmm. i started picking up on her stuff her podcasts especially and just seemed to me that, you know, her as an indie uh, going for, going forward, and she was on the cutting edge of technology every time some of this stuff would start. So she could work with it, break it, see how it worked, and then talk about it. And I thought, well, that's somewhere, let her do all the heavy lifting. So for me, following in their steps was kind of easy. But here I was in southwestern Connecticut, which is a train commute from New York City. And at the time, you know, the hemorrhaging and the implosions that were going on in the um, traditional publishing world were affecting the livelihoods of people in Fairfield County and New Haven County, who, whose livelihoods relied upon uh, traditional publishing. And so for me, when I was going to library uh, meetings about um, writing, when I was going to uh, listen to authors speak about their process or whatever, these were many people that were in free fall from the uh, traditional publishing contractions, you know, the contracting of the, uh, I'm using the right word, contracting of the the traditional publishing industry. And they, the, the feeling towards indies were, was not too all that pleasant. It was like we were sort of causing their problems, you know, Um, know, the fact that a lot of indies were eating a lot of 
people's lunches by getting great, you know, uh, readers uh, and and just exploding on the market to get, you know, reader share. Uh, And so it was a little bit of a, how do I want to say it here in in Southwestern Connecticut back when I first started, a little bit of animosity towards indies, honestly. And uh, I bring up indie questions at some of these um, seminars or get togethers, and I'd be met with blank stares, just completely like, uh, I'm sure you'll stop talking sooner or later. <laughs> and it just left me kind of cold. And so I had to go to the internet to get my, uh, and I had to, to get my uh, gurus, to get my mentors. Um, Joanna Penn, like I said, Tim Grawl, um, uh, Mark Dawson with the self-publishing formula. These are the mm-hmm. people that are teaching me the ropes these days. Now, um, I am really pretty much um, just now, uh, um, how do I want to say it for my fiction writing? I'm pretty much just now getting ready to launch for real to become somebody in the indie, in the indie world. I've done well from a nonfiction standpoint with, uh, four nonfiction books that I've written related to the business of private investigations. I'm also a coach of private investigators. So books as a business card work very, very well for me. I do well on LinkedIn. Uh, when I, uh, talk about my uh my nonfiction books when i talk about my coaching career they go hand in hand or as far as gump would say like peas and carrots but <laughs> in the uh but in the uh, in the fiction world i'm really just now getting ready for a launch and that launch is going to be in november um and uh i am putting together my timeline this week of all the things that have to be done between now and november um, so I've written one book and that's where that was, that's the, what the editor gave me back the edits for. I'm halfway through my second book, which means I still have to finish writing that while doing the edits for the first book. I then have to get the second book edited and then start the third book. Uh, at some point, I'm going to re-engage the, uh, the book cover designer who had did my, um, uh, Odessa on the Delaware introducing Marsha O'Shea. That's my crime thriller with a mystery twist where I now introduce Marsha O'Shea, and she is the protagonist of the the series that I'm hoping to launch in November. And for me, I'm going through the uh, the gyrations now, and that's a good word, of maintaining a part-time business, coaching, uh, podcasting, as we both are doing, and also trying to get three books ready for a three book series launch in nine more months. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little, uh, busy, but I'm enjoying it because, um, finally there's a, a recognizable path through the wilderness. Whereas maybe eight or nine years ago, when you were first coming out of, uh, traditional publishing, there was no path. There was just a wilderness and everybody had to kind of figure it out as they went along. So can you kind of like uh, give me a little bit of uh, t- uh, discussion about coming out of the traditional path and trying to find your way in the wilderness and how it became a, a process for yourself and how you got to be where you're at now? Because I'd love to hear that. Uh, I went through the same things that you're talking about. Uh, Joe Conrath was uh, definitely a resource. Um, I did not discover Joanna Penn until very recently. In fact, my friend uh, Colin Conway is the one that introduced me to to her stuff, um, and then uh, some of the other folks you mentioned as well. Um, you know, it, you mentioned uh, the 
response you got when you brought it up at uh, at a conference or at a, a you know in public and boy that was the case for a long time i mean when when ebooks first were like mentioned or whatever um they were the idea was you you bought you'd buy a cd and read it on your on your desktop computer you know and so everybody's kind of rolled their eyes at that you know like who's mm-hmm. gonna do that right you know one percent of people maybe and, and <laughs> so yeah. um and so i you know and so that that didn't really get me too excited initially and then uh uh self-publishing at the time uh was the term and up until you know the late aughts, early 2010s, mm-hmm. there was a huge stigma attached to that. It was basically considered vanity publishing. Oh, know? I was going to say the same thing, Frank. Yeah, they, they, the traditional publishers were quick to lump us in with people that were getting vanity published. And yeah, I didn't mean to take you off mm-hmm. your track, but yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. And I, I, I was feeling that pain too. I say, yo, here I am. I'm paying for a content and a structural and developmental editor. I'm paying for a copy editor. I'm paying for a proofreader. I'm paying for a book designer. Okay. I have beta readers. I have advanced copy readers. Exactly what am I not doing right here? <laughs> Where's that vanity publishing? You know? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, and I, it's, it's an argument that some people would, will, will still have, uh, oddly enough. But, uh, uh, you know, there was a time where that was the, the what vanity, what it was. I mean, right. if, the if you were self publishing, it was, yeah, you, you, you know, and, and in about 2006 or so, um, when the uh, when Wolfmont Publishing uh, picked up under Raging Moon, um, uh, it was a, a pretty vicious debate at that time still. And I remember the the publisher uh, getting into a lot of discussions online with people about it, and 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 the uh, arguments about the gatekeepers and the difference between, you know, self-publishing and vanity publishing and, and if there was one and, 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 and all of this. And, and there were myths going around that, you know, I mean, Tom Clancy was self-published or something like that. And I mean, and it just was a different time period. It's like right. trying to trying to compare the Gretzky era to today or something. I mean, mm-hmm. it just doesn't work. And so so I didn't really come to this till about 2012. And by then, uh, like you're experiencing, some of the heavy lifting had been done. I mean, Joe Conrath was doing a lot of, of experimenting and being very open about his, his results. And although he had the advantage of having ha- uh, been published uh, traditionally and, and getting some readership there and, and some other advantages that someone who hasn't been published at all uh, – or has been published by a very small publisher doesn't necessarily have uh, what he had to what he experienced was just super valuable um, to, uh, to to my own journey. And in addition to that, uh, the blog that he kept had a very active uh, you know comment section. Oh yeah, essentially a forum. Oh yeah, uh, it was a beacon in the in the darkness. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Because other people were commenting on the things and that he that he was experiencing, and sometimes their experiences were different. Sometimes they would call BS on what he said, and and he he would come back with his facts, and they'd come back with their facts. And it, and you know when you're sitting on the sideline 
during that tennis match, it's it's pretty illuminating and sure it helps is. you make your own decisions. Um, so, you know, I mean, if I had to do it all over again, I, I would have uh, spent more money on uh, professional covers sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cause I've had to go back, um, on several of the books and, and, you know, get, get, get new and better covers. Um, uh, and then, you know, I, I learned my lesson when it came time to release waist deep and I, I used the guy that Conrath, uh, was using a lot, a guy named Carl Graves and, uh, and he did a fantastic cover. And at the time, 2012, I spent 350 bucks for it, which seemed mm. like a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and it, it was worth it because I've never changed that cover and mm-hmm. there's other covers I had designed, uh, for 50 bucks, uh, that, uh, are, you know, in the virtual trash bin right now because oh, yeah. they just, they just, you know, screamed, they screamed amateur, you know, right. and, and so, uh, I learned a couple of hard lessons that way. Same thing with formatting. If you do your own formatting and, uh, you know, or you decide to, to pay to have it formatted. Uh, but I went through a very similar process to what you, what, what you're, you're, you've been going through. Just, uh, I think for me, it happened. The, the advantage that you have coming to it when you're coming to it, I, I think is that, uh, uh, so much of the history has already been written that you can, you know, you can start uh, with a whole bunch of things having been already worked out yep. and, and I saw them get worked out over three, four, five years. And, and so I was having to make adjustments on the fly and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that took up a lot of time and that's time you could be spending writing. Well, and the other thing too, is with the explosion of, uh, indie authors, um, and outfits like, uh, I, I'm going to go in, in order of least expensive to, most expensive, you have Fiverr, you have Upwork, you have Readsy, which is a fantastic uh, curator of uh, tools for uh, editing, book design, and uh, and uh, formatting. Uh, those those are th- those did not exist five or six years ago. Um, Scrivener to write in instead of Word uh, gives you a lot more tools to work with. I know some people are still die-hard Word fans. Um, but I can now upload into a, a program called Vellum to do my uh, formatting. Whereas back in 2012, 20, yeah, 2012, I utilized, uh, I think, either Smashwords or eBook Architects. And I paid mm-hmm. quite a bit of money to uh, have it formatted. And it really didn't, it was a lot of bugs in it still back then. So all, there's a lot of tools now that are coming to the indies that, are, that weren't there back then. And, um, and of course, Amazon has grown like leaps and bounds to uh, make it uh, a little bit easier to upload and to market on their platform uh, through KDB Print or KDP, but also uh, outfits like Ingram Spark, uh, Creative Source, uh, can now give you uh, a very competitive uh, uh, book cover, uh, book, uh, what do you call it? Soft covers. Uh, to anything that Amazon puts out, and it's as good as any quality you might get from a big five printer or a, a small mm-hmm. a small print. So there is a catering to the uh, indie market, whereas you know ten years ago uh, it was an uphill battle just to get anything mm-hmm. done. Uh, I started writing um, ten years ago, uh, published uh, my first novel in uh, about this time of year, uh, 2013. Had to take a three-year break because life got in the way. But, you know, came back in like uh, 17 
and decided that I was going to write mug shots and then Odessa and then the, the how to's and now the book series. Uh, and I'm, I feel like there is a, uh, a path to follow. You have to work at it just like anything else. It's just not a matter of uh, writing your writing craft improving. You always have to continue to do that, but you also have to learn the skills necessary to be an indie author if you want to uh, go this route. And there's no magic bullet for it. It's hard work. It's uh, knowing where it is. But at least nowadays, I think that um, the resources are much more uh, identifiable. Uh, the uh, the um, the shysters have been pretty much kicked out. You know, the people that are um, that would uh, prey on the people for vanity publishing are still there. But um, buyer beware. But I think a lot there's a lot more on the internet now about how um, indie writers can um, go about their craft, and, and there are resources that can make it happen. From you know how to write better all the way through how to uh, design Facebook ads or Instagram ads. You know, so um, but that's just me uh, and and where I'm at in my my process now. So where are you at now, and what's going on with you in terms of uh, the direction you're taking? <laughs> Uh, well, I retired from law enforcement in 2013 okay. uh, after tw- after 20 years, and so um, I did get into a teaching gig after that. I was teaching uh, a, a leadership program for the International Association of Chiefs of Police for about four years, um, and that was cool because I did get to go all over the U.S. and Canada and you know, hang out with uh, with with cops and and civilians in the in, in the law enforcement field for a week at a time. Um, and it was a pretty intensive course and had a lot to do with human behavior. So that helped out with the writing part too. Oh, sure. Uh, but you know, at some point I, I knew I wanted to just focus on this full time. And so at the end of 2017, I hung up my teaching spurs as well. And so that's what I've been doing, uh, for the last couple of years is, is, uh, just focusing on, 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 on my writing, uh, career, uh, which uh, I never expected it to, but it ended up being a career that is about halfway made up with uh, with uh, collaborations. Okay, uh, I, I'd, I'd have to go back and count books again, but you know, uh, uh, roughly half or forty forty percent or somewhere in there of my books have been books that I've written with other writers. I've written uh, with five different writers. Um, and uh, uh, multiple books with uh, all but one, and it's made me a better writer for sure. Uh, okay, and, it, and it's uh, definitely a, been an interesting process. That's, that's a whole other podcast, uh, <laughs> whole collaboration thing. Uh, but uh, I've done a lot of it, and so the reason I bring it up is because uh, after finishing up this series with Colin Conway, that'll be re- uh, released throughout 2020, that started with Charlie 316. Um, uh, I've been kind of focusing on my own work, uh, almost exclusively for, for 2020 and, uh, maybe a little bit beyond because there's been a number of different, uh, uh stories that have just kind of been backburnered while I've worked on other things. And, uh, if I'm not working you know, on, on the collaborative works, I'm able to, uh, focus on those a little bit more. Most of them are in the crime fiction realm. There are, there are a couple other, uh, books books outside of that that I'm, I'm going to finally get to as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, it, for, for me, the schedule is always pretty, 
pretty rapid. Uh, uh, right now, I'm, I'm writing the sixth River City book called A Place of Wrath and Tears, and I'm on a tight timeline for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at, uh, I think, a May 1st release. Uh, first time I've said that publicly, so it'll probably come back to bite me, but uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the very aggressive timeline. And then, uh, uh, and then the second book in the Charlie 316 series and the third and the fourth will come out in June, September, and November. Uh, bam, bam, bam from, from Down and Out Books. Um, as soon as I'm done writing this book, though, uh, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'll be diving into some of this other uh, stuff that I, I, I'm in a kind of a nice position in that there's three or four things I want to work on, and I'm not entirely sure which one I'm going to do first. I think I'm going to wait until I'm there, and then I can decide what what calls to me the most. And and I haven't been in that position in quite some time. I've I've had things uh, slotted up uh, first this, then that, and then after that one's done, this one, and and I'm not there anymore. Uh, having kind of finished that track a little bit, uh, not to say that I won't be working with other writers again. Uh, but, uh, uh, I'm kind of excited about exploring, uh, uh, my own stuff more exclusively for, for at least six or eight months. Okay. Now I, I know one of the things I do on my podcast, and I don't know if you do it on yours cause we hadn't discussed this part was I always ask, uh, the authors that come on, you know, who are they reading now or who's a, who's somebody in their universe that they think is up and coming and, worthy of a little shout out uh well i would shout out uh my one of my co-authors uh, actually all of them uh i'd like to make a quick mention for all of them uh, uh i wrote a, a single book with bonnie paulson uh she'd never written crime fiction before she's uh, in a completely different genre but uh, she performed admirably it's a good book called the trade-off okay uh and i wrote with uh lawrence kelter a couple of books uh the last caller and fallen city uh, both of them uh i think turned out uh really really good and really meshed our styles together uh and then i wrote a, a series called uh, the anya series with uh jim wilski a quartet of books uh starting with blood on blood that there's kind of a unique setup where we each wrote one of the two main characters and alternated in the first person, uh, chapter to chapter. Uh, so you get two very different voices. Uh, and I did that same exact, uh, format with Eric Beatner, who anybody in the crime fiction world probably has come across to Eric in one, fa- one, one facet or another. He's a great guy. Uh, and uh designed a few of my book covers and in addition to writing the uh bricks and cam job series uh, about a couple of hit 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 men and women <laughs> uh and then uh i've written the charlie 316 series with colin conway and that's who i would give the big shout out to because uh, colin's getting ready here to launch uh uh kind of a brave new series in a way it's uh it's called Co- it's it's the cozy up series is what it's called uh but uh, the first one's called Cozy Up to Death. And what's kind of cool about it is he, 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 he's written a cozy or pretty damn close to it. Um, but in the process, he kind of turns a lot of the tropes of the cozy subgenre on their head while still adhering to the rules. Okay. Uh, and using a character who would be more at home in some of our grittier noir hard-boiled stuff and so it's one of those stories that if you like you know the down and out books kind of stuff if you like the dirty gritty Mm -hmm. hard-hitting you know uh type of stuff uh you'll still dig this you know you might notice that that there's a few 
particular profanity is missing or maybe some violence isn't necessarily described quite as much detail, but you'll still dig it. And if you like cozies, you won't be put off by all of this because it's written within the structure of what uh, a cozy allows. So um, I think Libby Klein described it as uh, not your not your grandmother's cozy or something like that. And uh, when we first were talking about it, and he was telling me what his idea was. And it's like, yeah, it's uh, it's like a cozy for men, which is an incredibly sexist thing to say. <laughs> I know. But, no, um, I, I'm with you on that. It's, yeah, got a little bit more um, testosterone. Well, people know what it means, even if maybe it, <laughs> the fact that they know what it means maybe says we're not where we quite should be as a, as a society yet. But um, Or men but, haven't uh, quite developed as much. But anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's probably exactly the problem. Uh, but it, it's, it's a cool series. Uh, he's got the first three already written. They're going to drop here in about a month. And I would highly recommend uh, uh, Cozy Up to Death from uh, Colin Conway. Okay. Uh, for me, um, I was introduced uh, through uh, friends and uh, fellow podcast guests, uh, uh, David Swinson and Casey Barrett. I was introduced to Jay Todd Scott uh, out in Bauschikon, and he is the author of High White Sun and the Far Empty. It's set in uh, the scrub outside of uh, West Texas, uh, in West Texas, uh, along the Rio Grande River. Uh, he's a um, still a, a DEA um, in the management capacity of a DEA down there and somewhere in in, uh, in the Southwest. I don't know exactly where. And I forget. That's my mistake. But uh, his writing has gotten a lot of um, really nice uh, read. And one of the persons that blurbed it uh, was Craig Johnson, who was the writer of the uh, Longmire series, which is also, I think, a uh, long-running television series. And he said about um, uh, J. Todd Scott's first book, The Far Empty, he said, so good, I wish I had written it. So that kind of gives you an idea when you get an author that uh, you know, uh, an A-lister that says, gee, they wish they wrote that book. That, that I kind of gave me goosebumps when I saw that. Someday, maybe that'll happen for me. But anyway, so, um, Frank. Goosebumps of jealousy. No, 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 not at all. I'm, I'm not jealous at all. Let me tell mm-hmm. you, the uh, pot only gets bigger. I am so happy for my friends that, that uh, get acclaim. I read their books with just as much relish as a new reader wanting to see them grow. I mean, when we were out there in uh, Bausher Khan and there was the debut novelist panel, um, I just looked at some of those people and said, five years from now, they might be the next Lee Child. They might be the next, you know, oh, yeah. Patterson, you know? And I'm happy for them. I'm just happy for them because we all know how we bust our butt to put out the best product we can and to make, and with the ultimate goal of of entertaining readers with something that they can't put down, that we've earned mm-hmm. their time. And uh, uh, to me, I'm happy for them, quite frankly. Just, just <laughs> Yeah, I would say jealousy is a strong word, maybe some good-natured envy, uh, <laughs> and that uh, it's impressive to get somebody of that stature to say something great yeah. about your book. And I, 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 I definitely, I mean, I'm happy for them to have that. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, and you know, it would be great to have, uh, as well. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but you're right. You, you know, the, the, the market moves quickly sometimes and, mm-hmm. uh, 
and people who have been plugging away at this for years sometimes get passed over by brand new people and other times people have overnight success that takes about a dozen years you know? yeah <laughs> yeah uh yeah an overnight uh success right that took 10 years in the making right so uh for my listeners how can people get in touch with you frank uh, I have a website that's pretty easy. It's just uh, franksafiro.com. Uh, Zafiro is Z-A-F-I-R-O, uh, franksafiro.com. And there's a contact page there or contact uh, button there if they want to send me a direct uh, uh, message. But I'm on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, Instagram as well. And uh, if folks uh, are truly interested, they can sign up for my newsletter and get a couple of free books, including the first book in the River City series under Raging Moon, uh, just for signing up and uh, I get, uh, you know, free stuff every so often and keep up on the news as it happens. Uh, don't spam people, but uh, maybe like once a month or so, give them a quick update on what's going on. Hey, and I think that uh, if they're interested in you as an author and they're interested in your journey, that's not spam. That's, you know, you're, you're, you're doing it, you're grinding it, you're working it, you're making it happen. If somebody wants to follow that journey, then you're giving them the chance. They can always hit that unsubscribe button if they don't want to. Right. And many do. <laughs> and you know what? That's right. I mean, they, they get the free book and then if they want to decide to, uh, unsubscribe, so be it. I mean, but you know what? I feel the same way. Uh, people can reach me at, uh, John Hoda at, oh, I'm sorry, John at johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. And that's where uh, all things investigative resides. That's my uh, how-to books for private investigators. That's my fiction books, uh, fantasy baseball, and uh, the uh, Odessa on the Delaware. If they wait 10 seconds or try to leave my website, they get a pop-up which with uh, my uh, mugshots, my favorite detective stories, which is my reader magnet. And it's a um, eight story, eight and eight vignette, uh, eight short stories and eight vignettes about my career uh, from time I was a cop until like maybe a few years ago. Not a memoir, just a, uh, a, a creative nonfiction. Um, and they also get a complete list of all the podcasts from day one until now. So that's at uh, johnhoda.com. Uh, I want to thank you on behalf of my listeners, Frank. I, I appreciate you coming on my podcast, and I loved being on yours. <laughs> well, thanks for being on Wrong Place, Right Crime. And uh, I always uh, I always end the, the, the show by just saying that uh, you, you got to remember that uh, sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, like I said, a little bit of a different episode, uh, certainly longer than most. I uh, hope you enjoyed learning about John Hoda. Like I said, interesting guy with a, an interesting background that, uh, that now you know a little bit more about. And, uh, and you know a little bit more about me as well. I'd like to say thanks to John for coming up with the idea and for putting it together. And to uh, Chris Duckett, who did the uh, editing of the actual interview uh, and sent me a, a perfectly edited file. So my production time for this particular episode was actually less than usual, even though it's a much longer episode. So thank you, Chris. I'd also like to thank Down Out Books, as always, for being a great sponsor. And you, the listener, if you're still listening now, you are awesome. I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for firing up this podcast. Uh, and uh, I hope it is a good friend to you, especially during these difficult uh, and strange times that we're currently living in. 
On the next episode of A Wrong Place Right Crime, we're going to talk to best-selling author Hilary Davidson, uh, whose new book, Don't Look Down, is garnering a lot of buzz, and it should. Uh, very unique idea, and uh, she was a fun interview. Someone who very successful, and you know, it's always easy to pull for someone uh, to be successful when they're a nice person. I mentioned Sean Cosby recently, Sam Weeb, a uh, good example of that uh, from recent interviews. And certainly uh, uh, Hillary is uh, just uh, right there in that uh, group. So we'll talk to her in the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime. Until then, stay healthy, maintain your social distance, and remember that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to right crime.